When it comes to shepherding, um, as leading within a church body, I come from a long line of really good shepherds. I do. Um, on my dad's side of the family, that's the Weiss side, that's our last name, um, it started with my great-grandmother, from what I've heard. My great-grandmother and my great-grandfather on the Weiss side would had nine children. And my great-grandfather wasn't a follower of Jesus, but my great-grandmother was. And so every week she would load up all nine of those rowdy kids into the car. I don't know many cars that hold nine, so I don't know how that worked. But she would would round them up, load them in the car, and she'd drive them to church, and they would go and they'd worship together. And they'd do this week after week after week after week. And then one week, my great-grandfather decided, I'm going to give this whole church business a go. And so he gets in the car too. And they all go as a family to church. And the rest is kind of history. God, um, we have a backup in case. God used um, the church and he used my great-grandmother to change my great-grandfather's life. And it changed their family. Those nine children, what happened is that they all grew up and they got married and um, all nine of them ended up going into vocational ministry. All nine of them ended up being shepherds of one shape or form or another. And those nine, they all went into ministry and then after them came 32. There were 32 grandkids. That'd be my dad and all of his cousins running around. And all 32 of those kids grew up knowing Jesus. They grew up being led by the shepherds in their lives, their parents, namely. They got married, and all 32 of them went into vocational ministry. And then we're the next generation. And I don't know, there's like, I don't know, a hundred, a thousand, something of us out there. And um, we're not all in vocational ministry, but a lot of us are. A lot of us are. And then my mom's side's a little bit different. My mom grew up with the last name Greer, and um, she had a mom, my nana, um, and my papa. And my my nana had come from a Christian home, but my papa had not. And uh, my papa grew up um, with a brother and a sister and a father and a mother, and I don't quite even know if they went to church or not. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I just know he was not a believer and a follower for a while. And he came to the... And then on into college. And what happened was in between high school and college, there's a bunch of events that took place. And in all these events, there was the significance that happened, which drew him closer to the Lord. And then by the urging um, of some dear friends of his, he ended up deciding he was going to go into vocational ministry. He was going to be a preacher man. And so he went to Bible college, met my Nana. They decided they were going to raise their kids differently than how my Papa had grown up. And they did. They had five beautiful children. They raised them to love the Lord. And all five of those kids ended up going into vocational ministry. And then after those five um, got married and were, and were doing ministry um, with their spouses, they had 15 of us. There are 15 of us grandkids. And 12 of the 15 of us are in vocational ministry. Um, 14 of the 15 of us, I think, have a strong um, relationship with the Lord. Um, so that's kind of my story. That's my story. And I tell you that because what I want you to know is that we're talking about shepherding today. And I have spent years in the pasture and in fields, on hills and valleys, 
following shepherds. I've watched them as I followed them. I've I've been watching them tend to the sheep that belong to the Lord. I've watched them protect, provide, care for, bring back, discipline, rebuke the flock. And so if you're called into ministry, and therefore you are called to shepherd, then I can speak to you from what I've seen the last 30 years of what it means to be a good one. Here are just bits of advice I want to give to you this morning, kind of like from a big sister, okay? Some tips for how to be a good shepherd. Things, kind of, things that mark the life of a good shepherd. Tip number one, if you want to be a good shepherd, in order to be a good shepherd, you need to be able to pay careful attention to guard yourself and your doctrine, your moral and your spiritual purity, You're going to need to do that. Acts 20, 28 says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to your flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. First Timothy 4, 16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says this, Look carefully then as you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. In order to be a good shepherd, in order to be a good shepherd, you have to stay alert. Set good boundaries for yourself early. Have have accountability in place as soon as you can. Continue to study even when your study is no longer for a grade. Do not give up on the spiritual rhythm of meeting with the Lord. Do not give up on that. Tip number two. As a good shepherd, part of your job is going to be to move people from their current spiritual condition to where God wants them to be. To be a good shepherd, this means that you must be able to evaluate, discern, discuss, and truly know your people. As a shepherd, you're going to have to go out to people. You're going to have to share the gospel and good news with people. You're going to be called to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to be called to teach them not just the word, but to obey the word of the Lord. You're going to have to discern which one of your flocks need spiritual milk and which ones need meat, which ones need to be challenged, and which ones just need help to understand. I remember being so frustrated in one of our staff meetings at Sunnybrook, where where I'm currently serving um, early on. And I think I was the youngest person in the room. It's part of the reason why I was probably frustrated by this, because I surely, why do these older people not get it yet? You know, it's kind of what I was thinking. And I was sitting there in the circle, and we were dealing particularly with a family. And this family is young in their faith, and it seems like they need someone, leader, some leadership person on staff all the time. And we were talking about another complicated issue with this family. And I got really frustrated, and I said, um, like I said, I was the youngest person in the room, and basically I said, I think in a nicer way, but this is essentially what I said. I said, forget all these immature people. (laughs) I was frustrated, okay? If they don't get it, we just need to leave them high and dry. We don't have time to dumb things down. They need to get with it or get out. Essentially, that's what I said, I think. Probably nicer, but I am passionate, like Damien said, so it might have sounded kind of like that. Okay? And kindly, 
But sternly, the staff reminded me that this is part of our job. This is part of our job. We don't get to just quit people because they fail and fail and fail. No, like our job is to discern repentance. Our job is to discern even the slightest of growth. And then we challenge and we come alongside and we have crazy patience as growth continues to take place. It takes time to move people from their current spiritual condition to where God desires them to be. And that's part of our job description as shepherds. Tip number three. Part of your job as a shepherd is to bring back the strayed, seek out the lost, bind up the broken, and protect the weak. I'm going to say that one again. Bring back the strayed, seek out the lost, bind up the broken, and protect the weak. This requires you to discipline, rebuke, protect, and lead. Back to Acts 20, this time adding on a verse. I'm going to read that to you again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here's why. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You're called to protect. Keep watch. Because we do have an enemy and he's sending his own workers and they're going to come after our sheep. And then you're also called to rebuke and discipline. I'm in 1 Corinthians. We're going through that as a church. And I'm in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul addresses this issue specifically. And actually he's addressing it in this. Um, there's, a, there's some sexual immorality going on within the church. And so he gives one specific example. And then he says this about the idea of church discipline. Disciplining and rebuking. He says, um, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this, this specific sin, um, be removed from among you. And then verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man who's living in sexual sin. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that it's a big, so that, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So why do we do this? Why do we practice this? Why do we do church discipline? Why do we rebuke? Why is that part of our job? Well, Paul states that. Why do we do this? Verse 5. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's paid a price for us. He calls us to holiness. And finally, in verse 13, Paul reemphasizes it. Purge the evil person from among you. Protecting takes constantly being on guard. Leading with eyes wide open. And rebuking and discipline, it takes courage. It takes the right posture of heart, and it takes an unbreakable zeal and submission to the text. And to be a good shepherd, this is part of your job. This is part of your job. And four, tip number four, feed them. If you're a shepherd, part of your job is to feed the, fl- feed the flock, feed the sheep, feed them. Second Timothy four, one through five says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, Damien, (laughs) he taught me that preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming. 
When people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I think this time is now, by the way. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Preach the word. Preach the word. Jim... Um, our lead pastor in Stillwater, he loves, he's kind of sarcastic, and um, if you've ever, yeah, he, <laughs> Mark knows, and um, he's kind of sarcastic, and he loves to give people a hard time, and so we, anybody that's speaking, several ministers on staff speak over the course of the year. Jim is very generous with the pulpit. And so before we're going to go on stage, Jim loves to do this thing. You see, all, um, like the rehearsal has gone through with the band, and so they all go back to this green room. And the tech people come back to the green room, and whoever's speaking is in there. And we have this thing called a narrator, and they're in there, and Jim's always in there. And um, whoever's speaking gives a little w- word about what they're going to say. And then we pray. And then Jim leans over. He, he's done this to me. He leans over, and he does this to everyone who speaks, and he sticks out his fist like this. And as you go to give him a fist bump, like he's going to give you this great word of encouragement, he just smiles real big at you, and he says, don't screw it up. Just like that. Okay? No pressure. Don't screw it up. But can I be honest with you? When I think about all that is required to be a shepherd of God's people, all that is required to be a good shepherd, that is, of God's people, I feel this weight on me, this fear, like I know I'm just going to screw this up. I can't do this. I'm going to screw it up. I mean, I, when I was studying for the sermon, I could go on and on and on about all the different texts that address the idea of shepherding and leading God's people. There's a whole lot in scripture. And as I was studying, it just became this daunting weight on me. It makes like me take these big giant gulps. Makes my knees feel kind of like I might need a chair in a second. (laughs) I just feel like this is too hard. I mean, I'm only human. (laughs) I have limitations. And not only am I starkly aware of my own limitations, but I'm also aware of this long line of shepherds that have come before us. And every one of them failed. Every one of them. That's the list we're given. I mean, think about this. Moses. Yeah. David. Yeah. Peter. Yep. In Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord is recorded as coming to the shepherds of Israel by the way of Ezekiel, a prophet. And I don't know if you've ever read Ezekiel 34. You probably should if you're going to go into ministry. But Yahweh doesn't seem to come down. He's dealing with the leaders of Israel, okay? And he's pretty angry. And he doesn't seem like he's going to come down and just hit them on the wrist and say, no, no, do better. And he's not going to come down and just give them some more humans to keep trying to get the job done. He is angry because the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel have, have um, misused and manipulated the flock, the people of God, and he is not okay. And so this passage starts with this kind of stark, hard word of condemnation 
But then this is so awesome. It moves. It moves from condemnation to this hope of restoring the flock. And it's so cool because the Lord doesn't say, I'm going to give you better humans to shepherd my people and it's all going to fix itself. The Lord says this. He says, I will be their shepherd. I will seek them out. I will bind them up. I will rescue them. I will bring them back. I will feed them. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the broken. I myself, says the Lord, will be the shepherd of my sheep. And while all these other tips that I've already told you are really helpful, and I think even things that we should aspire to do, I mean, I did find those things in scripture, okay? But they're not complete. Those things are not complete. My family line is full of really good shepherds. But what makes them good is not that whole list I gave you before. What makes them good is they've always led me to the good shepherd. They've always pointed me towards Jesus. They've always entrusted me over to Jesus. They've always recognized that no matter what I decide, Jesus is their shepherd. And that's what made them good. Jesus says the following, you heard it earlier, but I think I need to read it again. John 10, 11 through 16, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep, but I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this field. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. There will be one shepherd. There are times, friends, when we look to the life of Jesus as an example for us. And then there are times when we have to look at Jesus and we have to realize he's doing something here that only he can do. His temptation. Really, is that just an example of how we can deal with temptation or is there something else going on there? The feeding of the 5,000. Maybe if we just entrust everything to him, he's just going to multiply it. Well, maybe. But there's something different when he says, no, I am the bread of life. And here as a shepherd, there's something different about being the good shepherd. What makes this shepherd good is the kind of shepherding he's able to perform for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Christ is the great caregiver of the church. I hope you know that. It's clear here that the caregiving of Christ includes the giving of himself for the body. This is the kind of shepherd that we have in him. And it's not just that he's willing to risk himself to protect the sheep. I mean, we can follow that example. But it's that this good shepherd intentionally lays down his life. Because all the sheep are dead unless he does. This good shepherd gives life. He is altogether a very different kind of shepherd. And he performs the most needed shepherding. So more important than all the advice I gave you at the beginning, 
I'm going to leave you with these three things, and I want you to remember them. If you have a pen, I want you to write them down, and I want you to look over them. (laughs) These three things. Here's the first one. You lead people to the good shepherd, not to yourself. I kind of mentioned it earlier when I said, feed them the word of God. But that's what I mean, feed them the word of God. Not your words, the word of God. Um, there's this guy, and he says this thing, and we like to quote it a lot um, at Sunnybrook. He says this, part of our job as ministers of the gospel is to wean people off of our wit and wisdom and onto the word and spirit of God. I love this place. I do. When people ask me about my time here, I kind of always explain it as, man, it was kind of like this incubator for my faith. Like I just, it's like I was this little egg and I was growing and growing and then I just got put in this incubator and it just like, I I hatched (laughs) and I got, I was like taken care of all the time and, and it was this bubble and I think it was a good thing for me. It was good for me to have four years of just being kind of set apart in this little area. That was a good thing for me. I got some good training there. I was raised up there. But let me just tell you, if you were to walk in my office right now, you'd even see, I know not all of you will do this, but if you're, if you're smart, you will. I have um, two whole shelves on my bookcase, and they are all of my, this is just the way I work, they're all of my Bible classes from Ozark, and my preaching classes. I think that's it. Sorry about the other ones. But all my Bible classes and the preaching classes, <laughs> um, I have all those notebooks and notes lined up on my shelf. And they're all in order. And I refer to them actually often when I'm preparing to speak, I go and I read, what did I learn about that eight years ago? Let me just refresh my mind on this. I do that. But can I tell you that I am way more thankful for the gospel of Matthew than I am for my Mark Scott notes on the gospel of Matthew. I am because I need the word and the spirit of God. Not the word and the spirit of Mark. Of Mark, That's what I need. And that's what your flock needs. Feed them the word. Make sure you give them the word. Not just your bits of experiential wisdom and your menial advice. Teach them to go to this book by leading them to it again and again and again. Well, Miss Morgan, what do you think about um, women preaching? Well, what does the text say? Well, Miss Morgan, what do you think about divorce? Well, what does the text say? Well, Miss Morgan, what do you think about homosexuality? Well, what does the text say? Let that be a refrain as you lead. Tip number two, learn how to give people over to the good shepherd. This is hard one, guys. I mentioned it earlier. Move them from their current spiritual condition to where God wants them to be. You're going to realize real quickly, you don't have the power to do that. You don't have the power to open the ears of those who don't want to hear. You don't have the ability to make someone's heart break and repent and trust and obey. You don't have that power. In fact, some of you here might find yourself married to a youth minister. And maybe, um, you guys, God blesses your family with a couple of beautiful girls. And, um, and so you have this older girl and she is as sweet as can be, but as stubborn as the day is long. And she is now two and a half. And that 
two and a half year old um, decides that she has her own will and her own way. And even though you sing her, Jesus loves me every night and you have prayed countless hours over her and you have taught her how to pray herself and you have taught her what it means to obey and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. She might decide that's not good enough as a two and a half year old. And she has a better idea of what she wants to do. And you don't necessarily need to be the authority in that moment. That's what she might decide. And it's like for a split second, everything that you've been teaching her just goes out the window. And her wicked heart leads her to sin. And you might correct her. You might spank her or take something away or put her in time out over and over and over again. You're going to persist and persist and persist in your leadership of her, but you're also going to become starkly aware of this hard and scary and incredibly tiring and defeated fact. You can punish and train and lead all you want, but you are powerless to give her a heart that desires to obey. And you better be ready as a mama of that two and a half year old little girl to take your eyes off of that little girl and to turn them on Jesus. And as you do that, you better be ready to lift up those tired hands with that little girl in them and give, give her over to Jesus Christ. As you leave her in time out to cry it out for the 50th time that day. You might find yourself, friends, called to foster a teenage boy. And maybe that teenage boy, despite all you do to try to saturate him in truth of the word of God, maybe he's still drawn to old ways. He can't seem to shake him. Or maybe he didn't want to shake him. You're going to have sleepless nights over that boy. You might just feel completely sick to your stomach. Like you might as well never eat again. Because nothing could possibly stay down with this yuck feeling inside. You might feel like you're completely helpless. You even ask God, why would you lead me to do this in the first place? The only way to remain faithful as a leader and to remain focused to the Lord in that moment is to give that teenage boy over to the Lord. It's the only way. And so feeling sick or not, you decide to make yourself a grilled cheese You continue to pray and study and saturate him in truth, trusting him to the Lord. You might find yourself raising a strong, independent personality who loves the Lord and desires to follow him faithfully. But this daughter of yours is now an adult, and it seems like the Lord has called her to some things that are harder than what you necessarily might have originally wished for her. You might have to watch her struggle through some depression. You might have to watch her go through a leadership issue at a church where she served. You might have to watch her struggle with loneliness or or heaviness for the ones that she has chosen to love. And it might just pull at your heart so much that you feel at times like you just can't breathe. You just want to make everything better for your little girl, even though she's an adult. And you can't. And in those moments... You need to give her to Jesus. You trust that he is at work. 
You trust that he has a plan. And you trust that he is the good shepherd of her soul. And that's what shepherding is like, friends. It's a lot like parenting. Feels like your heart's just out there walking around all the time. (laughs) And you so desperately want him to choose Jesus, but you just can't make him do it. The reality is, a lot of people you lead won't choose Jesus. You may preach and beg a husband and a wife to stay together and work through a difficult marriage, and they may look at you, thank you for what you have to offer, and call it quits anyways. You may get a phone call from a family in the congregation and hear some devastating news of the loss of a child in an accident. And as you walk into this morning house, you suddenly realize that you have nothing to offer them that will bring their daughter back. But you have Jesus. And so you share him with them. You cry with them. You pray with them. And you listen to them. And then you leave the house. And you pray to the God of heaven to do his work. To bring peace and comfort and get them through this. Because you're going to be keenly aware in that moment that this is beyond your capability. You may preach confessing sin and biblical community and repentance and obedience till you're blue in the face. And you might still have people refuse to act in response to the truth. If you're wanting to be a good shepherd, you better be ready to take those, that flock, those children of yours, the ones God has called you to lead, and you better be ready to entrust them back to him. Because the reality is, he's the only one that can save them. And he is the true shepherd they need. And tip number three, last one. Remember, he's your good shepherd too. Being a shepherd requires great sacrifice. It requires more sacrifice than you can ever give. Seek out the lost, bind up the broken, bring back the strayed. You're going to find yourself carrying burdens with your people, struggling through hardships with your people, rejoicing with your people. It requires more time, more money, more inconvenience, late night phone calls, early morning meetings, in the middle of dinner interruptions, missing your kid's birthday. There will be moments when you feel so incredibly just tired. When you have grieved and grieved and grieved and it's just too heavy to bear any longer. Remember, the good shepherd is your shepherd too. Christ is our shepherd. We shall not want. Christ makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. For Christ refreshes our soul. Christ guides us along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though we walk through the darkest valley, we will fear no evil. For Christ is with us. Christ's rod and staff, they comfort us. Christ has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. It is Christ who has anointed our head with oil. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we, the church will one day be before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter us with his presence. On that day, we shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike us nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd.
the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. And he will guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Remember, the good shepherd is your shepherd too. He cares for you. He heals you. He restores your soul. He will feed you. He'll be your peace and your rest and your comfort and your hope as you lead his people. You can rest in him and all that he is. He will provide for you. Amen? Amen.